Lord, please guide us as we look at your word and help us to grow in our understanding and our love for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Over these weeks, we are trying to wrestle with scripture, to read it faithfully and to seek to hear God's voice through it, uh, and to try to hear scripture as it speaks to one of the pressing issues of our time, um, that of the, the Black Lives Matter movement. And um, when we talk about Black Lives, that's meant to be an inclusive term. It's meant to affirm all people uh, who would describe themselves as, as people of colour or BAME people. Um, it's meant to be an affirming, inclusive term that all those who would perhaps not be described as, 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 as white uh, are affirmed and included and valued within that phrase. And we're trying to wrestle with this issue um, because it has, it has come so uh, rapidly up, up the agenda um, and also because it feels very overdue that there's much about our society and our church which doesn't reflect the values that we would like it to. And last week, um, Smi uh, spoke on the, the power of, of stories and memory uh, and the way in which it is far too easy uh, to uh, uh, sort of draw or write people out of the story, to not include people uh, in their memories. And we thought about the way in which Pharaoh, the new Pharaoh, did not include Joseph, did not tell his story, and that that led to an atmosphere where persecution and violence um, and oppression could flourish. And uh, I, I found that a really helpful way of, uh, of understanding the way in which a shared memory and a shared story uh, is so powerful and important. The story in Exodus moves on, um, and it, it, it moves on to the time when uh, Moses and Aaron uh, have been commissioned by God, particularly Moses in the wonderful story of the burning bush, to go back uh, to Egypt because he's run away, uh, and, and there to, to, to go to Pharaoh with this deeply and profoundly powerful uh, four words, let my people go. Um, and uh, this, the, the following chapters of Exodus are very much the, the to and fro between Moses and Aaron on one side and Pharaoh on the other. And as I'm sure you're aware, there are a whole set of plagues that come upon the people of, Israel, uh, people of Egypt, um, and there are 10 in total. The first is the one that we've heard this morning, where Moses is told to, to take his uh, staff and to and to strike the water of the Nile, and it turns into blood. And uh, it, as I say, it, it's part of this to and fro between Moses and Pharaoh, the let my people go, and Moses uh, and, and Pharaoh saying no, that he won't. And as the, the, the plays continue, there is this growing sense within Pharaoh, this growing inability to grasp what is happening. He cannot, it seems, see past political convenience. He needs the people to do his slave labor. He cannot see past a sense of national pride. We are in charge and you are our servants. And he cannot see past a sense of personal stubbornness. The beginnings of realizing that actually God 
is on the side of the oppressed. So for political convenience and national pride and personal stubbornness, he digs himself further and further into this hole where he will not hear the voice of God or see the evidence that God is at work. He's almost uh, like a contestant on that uh, program. Remember Deal or No Deal, where, uh, where they began uh, with, a, with a reasonable offer and, uh, and they turn it down. And uh, as the, the game goes on, they become more and more desperate and more and more stubborn that they will not uh, admit defeat. Pharaoh refuses to see that God is on the side of the downtrodden. Yes, because they are his people. They are God's people. That's why he's on his side. They're, that's why he is on their side. But also because we know throughout Scripture that God is on the side of the downtrodden. He is on the side of the oppressed. Remember those wonderful words from, from the book of Amos about where uh, the, the prophet rails against um, the religious feasts, the, the worship, even the music and the singing, that, that, that God hates this. He hates it because it is not accompanied by justice and compassion and appropriate care of the, of the poor. You remember in, in Micah chapter 6, that, that, that lovely phrase, what is it, O man, that God desires for you to love mercy, do justly, and walk humbly with your God. This, this powerful sense in scripture that God is on the side of the downtrodden. And, uh, and that beautiful passage which Mary read from us from, from Luke chapter 1, the Song of Mary. Um, Mary's uh, uh, song, that, sometimes known as the Magnificat, um, has within it these, these seeds of revolution. Uh, God will bring down the mighty from their seat and, and lift up the humble and meek. God will send the rich away empty. Um, and it's, it's such a, an explosive text that actually there have been places and times in history when it's been banned. Apparently, um, during the British rule of India, the Magnificat was prohibited from being sung in church. And in the, uh, in the 1980s, apparently in Guatemala and in Argentina, um, the authorities banned the use of that song because it was so dangerous. It was so revolutionary. When people start to read the scriptures, they see in the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, and in the New, that God is on the side of the powerless. He is the God of the deliverance. He is faithful, yes, to his covenant promises, and of course, he has bound himself to the people of Israel. And, and we rejoice in that, in this part of the story. They are his people, and he has a special relationship with them. But that sense of being on the side of those who are downtrodden, who are being oppressed or exploited, runs right the way through Scripture. He is the God of the Deliverer. And Pharaoh, for all his power, all his learning, all his position, he cannot see it. He cannot see where God is, and he cannot see who God is. And he seeks to frustrate the purposes of God, and he keeps saying no, and no, and no. But even this, 
the most powerful man in the ancient world, with all his pomp and power, cannot frustrate the purposes of God. God will and does overcome. Faithful to his promises and leading his people out of slavery. God will overcome because ultimately he is the source of true power. And when things are not as they should be, then God is on the side of those who will restore it. Now you might be sitting there thinking, okay, that's all very interesting, Tom, but what difference does that make? What, what, what will, how will that help me tomorrow or in the, the weeks to come? And what has that got to say about the Black Lives Matter movement? Well, firstly, and, and really very simply, I, I, I want you to, to know that if you feel powerless, or worse still, powerless and taken advantage of, powerless and exploited, that God sees you, that God is with you, that God cares about what you are going through that God is on your side. And God is faithful. He was faithful to the people of Israel. He is faithful to his promises. And with, now that we belong to him, we are his. He is faithful and he can overcome because he is the God of the deliverance, the God who is powerful enough, the source of true power, and he can overcome. It might not be as quick as we want. It might not quite take the shape that we want. But whatever the size of the problem, it does not need to crush us. And there are plenty of problems around, aren't there? Within our heads during this pandemic, because it's horrible, within the families, within loved ones in our church community, within our society and our world. God is good, he is faithful, and he is powerful. That which tries to oppress us will not have the last word. And then for the Black Lives Matter movement, for this desire to see the justice and equality that we see in scripture lived out around us, what does it mean? I believe it's a challenge to ask us, can we see where God is and who God is? Because wherever people are made to feel powerless or wherever there is exploitation, then surely God is there on the side of those whose power is taken away, those who are exploited or abused. And when that powerlessness is forced on them, when that injustice is forced on them based solely because of their ethnicity, then surely God becomes deeply moved and deeply committed to putting right that wrong. And if we think that somehow this is happening thousands of miles away on the streets of American cities and so forth, I, I would like to suggest that it, that it isn't. When a British Pakistani boy in Spark Hill 
gets lured into cycling around our area, passing packages into the windows of expensive cars, then surely he is a victim. He is being exploited. And it happens. It even happens in our church car park. When an Asian woman comes thousands of miles to join a husband she barely knows and finds that that man may already be in relationship with another woman and objects and finds that she is beaten for doing so. When the Caribbean boy is trying hard at school but is marked down because teachers expect him not to do well. When the Romanian child playing in the school playground is told after the Brexit vote that they will soon be going home. When a teenage girl of any ethnicity, any ethnicity, is subject to sexual comments or unwanted attention and cannot walk from the bus stop on the Stratford Road home through the church car park. When a candidate for any job is not shortlisted because their name appears to sound that it comes from a particular group. When a black African man is stopped and searched by police for no other reason that he is black and African. The list goes on, doesn't it? All these things happen. They happen within a few hundred yards of our front doors. Where is God then? Where is he then? He is with those people. He is for those people. He is weeping with those people. And he wants to bring them the same freedom and deliverance and dignity and respect that he brought to the people of Israel. So where should we be? We should be with those people, arguing, standing, supporting, doing what we can to fight for them to know freedom and deliverance and dignity. Now, praise God that much of these things do happen. And I thank God, continue to thank God for the Springfield Project and all the wonderful things that it does and all the wonderful things it would love to do more once the pandemic is over. But there is a role for all of us, isn't there? Each of us individually to call out those times and occasions when people are not given dignity and freedom and respect. To do what we can to stand gently but firmly, not patronizingly or paternalistically, but honestly and with integrity for those who are oppressed who are subject to powerlessness, exploitation, or even abuse. We have our part to play. If you can imagine Pharaoh crossing over to join with Moses and Aaron and say, yes, of course you can go. Of course you can know freedom. Of course you can know dignity. Of course you can know all the things that I know. And let's begin to walk that journey together. Might that be our role?
to cross over and walk with people into a better future. Amen. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. I'm going to hand over to, uh, to Debbie, and um, she's going to share a little bit of her story as we continue to think together. Thank you. I'm really nervous, <clears throat> so um, <clears throat> please excuse me. I wanted to start off by saying that when you hear words like Black Lives Matter, it's not just about protests, but sometimes it's about people like me. My parents were from the island of Barbados, but I was born in 1965 in Luton, Bedfordshire, England. And I didn't know that I was different until I was about eight and uh, started being called names in, in relation to my colour at school, as children do. But when I was 11 and I went to senior school, I was the first and for a while the only person of colour to attend what was a new school. So for the first year when the teachers weren't around, every time an older pupil went past me, they would chant Malnew. And for many months I didn't know what that meant until someone told me it stood for malnutrition because I was both black and skinny. So when I was 24, I went to Kent to train as a social worker. But there, even as an adult, I got taunted by school children if I walked past them. There was a couple of times I went on a bus and I was the only person of color on that bus. And sometimes people would talk about me loud enough for me to hear. So when I qualified as a social worker, I decided to come to Birmingham where I thought it would be different. I've been privileged to go abroad many, many times over the years, but in Germany and Italy, I got stared at. In Prague, there was an occasion when I went somewhere for lunch and two young men uh, sat at table next to me and started doing monkey chants as I was having my lunch. And no one, no one in the restaurant challenged this. Last year, my husband and I, we went to Crete. And in getting off a bus, my husband, who was white, had no difficulties. But just as I was getting to the door, the bus driver closed the doors in my face so that I had to run to the front of the bus where people were normally getting on and try to get off because I was panicking and I couldn't get off. The day before the referendum, I was standing at a bus stop in Moseley and this young man shouted in my face that after the next day, people like me would have to go back to where I came from. I got a job as a warden uh, at sheltered accommodation again in Moseley, but I had to leave because there was a small group of residents that didn't want someone like me managing them and the thought that the trustees should not have employed somebody like me. So although I never named what was happening, the words racist and racism was used both by the trustees 
and the other residents who were both apologetic and supportive of me. And although racial profiling is often used regarding stop and search over the, over the years, I've been followed very obviously by security guards in shops and supermarkets in case I stole anything. So my reality is that I have been living with and being treated as being different from the age of eight to now, really. A few weeks ago, someone made a comment about us taking offence. In my 55 years, I have never ever retaliated because it would be unwise and sometimes futile for me to, to do so. So finally, I want to say that Black Lives Matter is not just a slogan. It's about people like me and other people of colour who just want to be treated with equal respect because our lives matter as well. That's it. Thank you, Debs. Um, really kind of you to share um, so honestly with us. We are enriched beyond words. Thank you.